This is Marching In, a brand new Southampton FC podcast hosted by me, Luke Innes, and Sam Apperton. Music is from the immensely talented Lawrence Norton. We would really appreciate a follow on Spotify and on Twitter, where you can find us at Marching In Pod. Welcome to episode 12 of Marching In Podcast. We have got a very yeah, special guest with us today. We are doing a slightly different pod. We're going to do a preview of the Brentford game on Saturday. So yeah, Brentford visits St Mary's on Saturday the 18th. We're recording this on Monday the 13th. And we are delighted to be joined by the Athletics Brentford reporter, Jay Harris. How are you doing, Jay? Yeah, really good. Thanks. Thanks for having me on, guys. Thanks very much for being here. So, yeah, Sam and, and Jay know one another from Jay's time at Sky Sports News. But, Jay, you've been with The Athletic for yeah probably four or five months now. So since Brentford got promoted to the Premier League, I think I've read somewhere it's the first, I think the first time I've been promoted to the top flight of English football in 70, nearly 74, 75 years. So monumental occasion. But you move from Sky Sports News to Brentford uh, yeah, maybe kind of talk talk us through that before we dive into all things Brentford and preview the game. Yeah, no, no worries. So um, myself and Sam used to work together at Sky Sports News on, on the yellow ticker. So we'd be responsible for breaking news. And it was something really enjoyed. It was really intense at times, especially with the European Super League. That was a, a period of time where something was always kicking off, but I absolutely loved it. But I always knew that deep down I wanted to just be a more established reporter. I still ran my own little blog on the side and would, would write maybe 500, 600 word features when I could. Uh, did a couple of long read boxing articles for Sky Sports' website, which I really enjoyed doing. And then The Athletic basically advertised for, for a talent ID day. And, uh, you know, this is not me uh, waxing lyrical now that I work for the company. I was, I was a subscriber from, from the moment they launched in the UK. So I was a big fan of what they did. To kind of put myself forward for the talent ID day and you know it was a really enjoyable experience got got access to you know a lot of the editors a lot of the writers just got a chance to to understand how they work and kind of the pressures and the expectations of of what a reporter should do and how a journalist should think and then they kind of invited me to interview for the for the Brentford role and yeah very very fortunately I got it and and as, as you said last time they were they were in the top flight of English football was in 1947. So to be a part of their, their journey this year has been, been really enjoyable. And obviously also that opening day of the season against Arsenal was the first time that they'd had a full capacity crowd at their new stadium. So a couple of historical moments right off the bat for me Amazing. to see into, which, which has been quality. Must be quite a, I mean, a shock for the club, really, like in terms of, I mean, I've been to Griffin Park a few times. It's just... It was a. It was a really. I really liked this as a stadium, but to go from that to what it is now—a multi-purpose ground. Obviously, have it. They use it for rugby as well. Just is there sort of a buzz around the club now? Now they're into that new stadium. Yeah, definitely. And obviously, I speak to fans for my job quite a lot. I think obviously a lot of people really miss Griffin Park, and they were devastated that they didn't get to to you know say farewell in the way that they would have liked. But actually, I've had people say that that made the migration process easier in a way. It was almost kind of like ripped apart from them. 
Um, the band they didn't come off slowly. I think also, obviously, results have a big factor. Had they moved to the new stadium off the back of losing the championship playoff final to Fulham, that might be gut-wrenching. And if you start that season with a few poor results, then all of a sudden it becomes very easy to, to forge an almost dislike of the new stadium. But obviously, straight away, they've beaten Arsenal. They've had, you know, that incredible free-all draw with Liverpool. Even that 1-0 loss to, um, to Chelsea, the atmosphere in that place was incredible. So I think all those new memories they forged have really helped. And as you said, Griffin Park was run down. The toilets were dreadful. The food stores were dreadful. You know, Brentford have really spoken to the fans and spoken to the community about they wanted that new stadium to give them the facilities are much, much better than they are now. I think they went from having eight, 80, um, what's it called? Not first-class lounges, um, like executive lounges, you know, font, fancy prawn sandwiches and that kind of stuff. <laughs> I think they went from having 80 at Griffin Park to something like 2,000 now. So in terms of capability, it's just gone through the absolute roof. And as, as I'm sure you guys have seen from, from the television pictures, it's a, it is a very nice stadium. Yeah, uh, no, definitely have. And Sam's here, by the way, to the listeners. I forgot to intro you, Sam. But yeah, as always, a staple on the Marching In pod, Sam is with me. Um, and Jay, we're going to go into the, the the Saints game on on Saturday. But I think it'd be good to kind of properly flesh out where Brentford are at as a club, because it's been a very interesting journey under Matthew Benham over the last kind of yeah five six years and I've, I've seen a few bits that you've done recently about is it um uh, is it Brasmus Ankerson the the sporting yeah. director which is um he's now moving on for the club but people like that are the kind of in top leadership positions what yeah kind of what have you seen up close and personal work you know working now as Brentford reporter in terms of that that model and it kind of playing out in practical terms at the club because I think a lot's been spoken about you know the use of analytics the use of data as a football club they're very forward thinking and I know they have the link with um, Mitchell Land in, in Denmark as well but yeah maybe kind of you can start at the beginning if you want to you can start wherever you want but it'd be interesting to know kind of what that's what that seemed like you know working with the club up close now. So Matthew Benham became chairman of the club in or he took up full ownership rather in 2012 but before then, he was a little bit of a secret investor helping the, uh, the club out in, in times of administration and financial difficulty, especially in the early noughties. And um, I can't remember exactly how they met each other for the, for the first time or, or rather the reasoning behind it. But um, Rasmus met Matthew, I think, in 2013. And um, he said to Matthew, you know, what are the chances of Brentford getting promoted this season? And he said 42%. And obviously Rasmus was just confused why someone hit him with a statistic. You know, normally you ask someone, they say, oh, you know, maybe if our striker gets 20 goals and if this happens and, you know, if we get a new manager, then maybe. And from Rasmus's perspective, he, I think he thought that Matthew is very similarly aligned to him in the fact that they're trying to, to look outside of the box for solutions. And I think something that Rasmus has mentioned countless times, and I think is probably the club's unofficial motto, is that if they can't outspend teams, then they need to outsmart them. And I think, obviously, as you've alluded to, that's something they've done with the, with the analytics. It's something they're, they're really conscious of on a recruitment side of things. Um, one thing that really interested me is that, that Phil Giles, their um, co-director of football, who will become the sole director of football from January, he said in an interview, he was asked about signing Arnott Danjuma from Bournemouth, who obviously went to Villarreal for £25 million, 25 years old. And he said it's a signing that Brentford would never make. 
because there's no Arnaut Danjuma in theories hit his peak value. So from their perspective, there's no point signing a player who's entering or in the middle of his peak years and they're never going to set him on for a profit, which I thought was really interesting. And that gives you an insight into how Brentford operate. They're going to be looking at players that are aged around 19 to 23 years old who they can develop, they can improve. And then further down the line, they can make a profit off of. It's obviously taken them from League One to the Championship to the Premier League. And at the same time, I think it was a really smart approach to taking the championship because it also meant that they weren't signing 28, 29, 30-year-olds who were on the decline. They were signing these players who, especially in the case of Ollie Watkins and Saeed Benrahma, had they got promoted with those two players in, in the team that season, they would have been capable Premier League performers. They weren't just looking at it as championship or bust. They were all, always thinking long-term. And the example to give in this, in this summer is Christopher Ayer, who's 23 years old and I think is really a really, really classy central defender. It's a shame he's been ruled out through injury so much. But I think potentially in two, three years, you're going to see, you know, teams at the top of the table come in for him. So that that's a little bit of an insight. But if I've missed anything, feel free to feel free to throw to it. I think a lot's been made. You, I mean, you, you haven't there. It's been really good to get the context, Jay, on, on kind of Benham's history with the club. But a lot has been made of the kind of, I guess, the... Uh, the transfer dealings that Brentford have done in terms of making a profit on players. And your, your example there of Arno Danjuma is a really interesting one. He's also having what seems to be a very good season for Villarreal, <laughs> so maybe he hasn't uh, quite reached his peak, but who knows? Uh, yeah, but, you know, from I'm thinking about Neil Morpé, Watkins, there's been speculation, I think, given how well Tony started the season about where he might go next. You know, uh, I guess that's the sort of club that Brentford is. But I think... In, in some respects, even coming into this summer, they didn't really sign any standout names, but again, look to make those smart dealings. And I think, is it Onyeka that came from, from Denmark? Um, yep. uh, Aya, who you mentioned as well. And was it Visser was one of the other kind of bigger signings, yep. but again, un, unknown players. Like, do you think that, again, they're, they're doing some real smart dealings in, in coming up to the Prem? 110%. And I can I can tell you, for example, with Johan Visser, that they were looking at Visser for the best part of 18 months to two years before they signed him. So it kind of gives you an indication of how far ahead into the future they look. Um, and sometimes when I have these conversations and you learn a little bit more about the industry being on the inside, it becomes, I don't know, almost worrying that it seems like a lot of clubs don't make very sensible decisions. So it seems like Brentford are very much always thinking a transfer window or two transfer windows ahead. And when you say it out loud, it makes it makes perfect sense. But actually, you see a lot of clubs just living in, in the actual moment. And, you know, Ronaldo's not done too badly at Manchester United, but that's a prime example of where they've actually not looked at what that team and what that squad needs long term. They've just very gone Ronaldo, Premier League title or bust. And at the moment, it's gone absolutely bust. And um, like you said, the way that they work is that they look at a lot of players who are potentially in leagues where, you know, as you alluded to, the Danish Super League is one example where your teams traditionally in the Premier League aren't going to look at those areas for, for potential recruitment. But there are players there who in the right circumstances and under the right coach and with the right setup around them can really flourish. And the best example for Brentford, which still blows my mind, is that they signed Vitali Janow um, from VFL Bochum the Bundesliga for £500,000. And he is one of my favourite Brentford players. I think he's 22, 23 years old and he's absolute class. 
he's probably worth at least 10, 15 million now. And that's just because they were willing to look somewhere a little bit different. They could, they saw a left-footed player who was versatile. He played at centre-back at the weekend. Normally he plays CDM. And that just gives you an indication of how, you know, they just don't want to look in familiar places because if they end up into a, into a bidding war, they're probably not going to win. And also what's intriguing is that, again, it's something Rasmus has spoken about. The club always try and, you know, this marginal gains phrase sometimes gets overused. But what Brentford have tried to do is look at how they can improve their backroom staff to see if they make an impact on how players perform. So they have a sleep coach, for example, and that her name's Anna West and she analyzes the player's sleep because I think from her research, she found out that if a player has a poor night's sleep, for example, I think they're 15 or 20% more likely to suffer a serious injury. So things like that, Brentford are looking at and saying, okay, how can we take Neil Mope, for example? Let's say Neil Mope sleeps four hours a night and he's dreadful before a game and it's impacting his performance. They can look at that and try and work on that. They've got a mindset performance coach who I interviewed a few weeks ago and it was really different. Some people will find what they do a little bit too quirky. We know what English football's like with its traditions. If you do anything different, then, you know, your head's coming off. But um, their mindset performance coach, you know, just his name's Jack Burnell and he was a former Team GB uh, Olympic swimmer. So he only retired at the beginning of this year. And he just basically teaches the players different techniques about how to deal with, with high pressure environments. So again, that's something I find really interesting just at how they they try and do different things off the pitch as well as on the pitch. I find this fascinating, Jay. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, I could probably ask many questions on this. Sam, have you got anything to to come in on before we kind of move move the conversation on a little? No, it's just um it's just incredible how they've worked in the transfer market really. I mean you look at and even going back to I think was it players like even players like Scott Hogan going back all that time. They just always seem yeah. to have this main centre forward obviously got Tony now, they've had Ollie Watkins, had Neil Mope. I mean, I just wish our recruitment could have been as like, effective as Brentford's in terms of, our, I mean, obviously we had Ings for a couple of years who worked out very well. And then, um, but now you look at Tony now, I mean, obviously if Tony keeps going the trajectory he's been going, he'll he'll move on. He'll, some, a club will pay top dollar for him. But you just know that Brentford, as Jay said, um, they'll, they'll have someone lined up. They'll probably already have Tony's replacement in their in their minds already. They probably do. And I think as well with, with Ivan, there were Premier League clubs interested in him at the time and they didn't take that gamble. And Brentford are willing to take that gamble, essentially. They're willing to say to a player, look, come here. This is what we can do for you around the pitch. Ivan, you know you're just the presence that you have. You know you're going to end up being a leader of this team. You can do that for two, three, four years. And depending on where our journey ends up with you, you might move on to another club. But they're not, they're very open about the fact that they won't hold players back from their ambition. You know, as long as they get the right price, people will, it's easy to think. When they sold Ben Rama and Watkins, people were going absolutely mad from a Brentford perspective. You know, what are they playing at? They're never going to get promoted if they've got that mentality. You know, what on earth? Hold out for a little bit more. But actually, it's worked out because, as you've said, they already knew that if Watkins went, they were going to try and sign Tony. It didn't happen immediately, but it happened eventually. And, you know, it just proves that sometimes if you have faith in your own process, then things will work. And I think that's probably one of the biggest things that benefits Brentford more than any other club. Um, just the structure and the consistency across the whole club. You know, you never see them make rash decisions. Everything seems to be very methodical and very thought out. And that, that 
pays off in, in so many ways. Oh, Sam, hey, we were once the darlings of the transfer market. Now <laughs> listening to, to Jay talk about Brentford seems like we've, uh, yeah, I, that's how Brentford appear to me. I think they're the envy of a lot of football league clubs, but also a lot of Premier League clubs for doing things the, very much the right way. Also, I think, yeah, I'm thinking about comparisons with Saints when we first got promoted. And I think there was a couple of seasons where we were signing a lot of quality players, including a centre-back, which probably had a similar reputation to um, Ayer from Celtic in Virgil van Dijk. So, yeah, who knows if uh, Ayer will go on to, to sell for 60, 70 million. Um, Jay, just a, a kind of question that I was thinking of as you were talking through that. Is it due to just a kind of massive scouting network or is it due to, you know, I guess the kind of ethos that is instilled from the, the leadership at the club in terms of we need to work smarter here? Like, like what have you seen in terms of actual personnel doing these roles to recruit so widely? So basically, <clears throat> so the owner, Matthew Benham, he, he made his money through, he was part of a like a betting syndicate and they basically used, you know, this is where, my forte is not algebra and physics and this kind of stuff, but they basically use statistical analysis to analyze football matches. And the example that they always give is always give is the season where Newcastle finished fourth under Alan Pardew. Because basically, if you look at the underlying data, Newcastle should have finished 11th or 12th that year. And you can go on YouTube, and I encourage you, you do, and you can watch Rasmus Ankerson do a TED talk, and he, he talks about this in full detail. It's, it's, it's stunning. And basically, you know, obviously Newcastle finished fourth, they hand Alan Pardew an eight-year contract. And the underlying data tells you that actually that's not the wisest decision to do. What happens the following season, they finish, I think, 17th, 16th, narrowly avoid relegation. The whole mood switches, but that was far more reflective of what was going on. So basically they use that statistical analysis to see how they're performing, how the players are performing. And then they've also applied that and I don't know exactly how, as you can imagine, it's a little bit like KFC's herbs and spices. They're not giving that recipe out to anybody, but essentially <laughs> they, they apply that to, to the transfer market. So like I said, they look at players who are potentially really, really high in this metric, but because they play in, in League Two in France, no one else is really ready to gamble or, or, or pick up on them. So that, like I said, they'll then analyse that over a period of time. Is it because a player is working really well in a specific system? And if you took him out of that system, he'd be absolutely dreadful. Um, there's so many different factors, but they, they analyse them all. So hopefully that gives you a little bit of an insight. It definitely does, Jay. Yeah, and I'm thinking of um, Alex Stewart, who does stuff for TIFO and The Athletic, was talking about Brian and Bumo, who I think was from League Two in, well, yeah. League Deux in, in France as well. And apparently Saints were kind of similarly looking at, at him just before Brentford got him. And, and obviously Brentford took the gamble on him. But I think something that strikes me about Brentford's transfer model is it, it does, you know, there seems to be that upside, but quite low risk, right? If some of these transfers, they're not high profile names. If they're not kind of integrated within the first 11 right away, then, you know, they're maybe not kicking up a fuss because moving to the Premier League or a high performing championship team, like that's a big move for them. Um, and I'm kind of comparing it with Saints again over the last maybe four to five years, going back when we actually spent some money, but there were some high risk transfers that didn't go well for us. And, and me and Sam have spoken about them on the podcast previous, but they've been really costly, you know, in terms of the wage bill, the structure of the club, the playing 11, 
you know, and decisions that didn't seem that smart with with hindsight. And I appreciate hindsight's a wonderful thing when it comes to transfer dealings in football. But yeah, it's been really interesting to talk about that side of things. Before we move into the the upcoming fixture and how Brentford are faring this year, the B team, I mentioned the B team because Saints have a similar setup, right? And we, we've had that for yeah maybe two years now. I don't know how long Brentford's B team has been going, but just for listeners who kind of maybe aren't familiar with that setup at Brentford, could you maybe quickly give an overview of that and the reasons behind moving from, you know, I guess a typical under 23 setup to that B team style that Brentford have employed? Of course. And this, this is a question I really enjoy answering because I find it, I find it fascinating. So basically the reasons are they closed the academy in 2016 and basically, you know, they just found that it wasn't cost effective. It wasn't making them any money. The idea or the whole concept of an academy is that you're creating players for the first team and that just wasn't happening. Um, We've all spoken about Brentford's facilities at their stadium, their training grounds, not much better. Uh, And they just announced within the last week that they're kind of updating their plans uh, to improve Jersey Road because at the moment it's essentially a bunch of porter cabins and that's for the first team, let alone if you're an academy player. So if you're 14, 15, 16 years old and you're at Brentford and a Chelsea are interested in you, a Manchester United are interested in you, uh, which is what happened with two individuals. So Josh Bahui went to Manchester United and Giancarlo Paveda, who's now at Leeds, uh, went to Man City. Compensation fees, really minimal. Brentford basically said, what's the point? It's not making us any money. It's just infuriating. So, you know, they very boldly decide to switch to this BT model. And um, one of the people who's kind of behind that decision was, was Robert Rowan, the club's technical director who, who passed away three years ago. I think anytime I speak about the B team or anybody speaks about the B team, it's important to recognise the impact he had on it. He was a real visionary in that regard. And yeah, just the idea was that it's pretty much not impossible, but very hard to tell when a player is 16, 17, 18, how good they're going to be. Because you might have a player who's absolutely ripping it up in the academy when they're 16, 17, but they might have already hit their potential. And you might see players who are 17, 18, and they don't look particularly good within an academy, but they might have a far longer career in the game. And the example at Brentford, although they didn't come through the academy, is Ethan Pinnock. Because I think Pinnock was at Millwall's academy, dropped out, went to Dulwich Hamlet, was there for about five or six years, went to Forest Green, went to, I think it was Barnsley, now he's a Premier League player at Brentford at the age of 28. There are players who would have been at Millwall's academy with him who were expected to go on to far bigger and better things, but Pinnock is the one who's probably achieved the most. And that's kind of the concept of the B team. When your bigger clubs, so Chelsea, Manchester United, Arsenal, when they're releasing talent at 16 or at 18, can Brentford kind of have a conversation and communication with those clubs to say, okay, you're not keeping on this player, but do you think do you think we might be able to help them out? And they say, yeah, go on. So a couple of players will move over to Brentford. And this whole games programme that they have is, uh, is fascinating to watch. So as you know, English football operates under this elite player performance plan. And because Brentford set up the B team, they, they no longer um, come under that. So they basically organise their own fixtures. They don't play against well, they don't play in a league against other end of 23 teams. So they're not in Premier League 2, for example, or anything like that. Uh, and it means they come up against all manner of random teams. I've seen them play Southend, who obviously just dropped out of League 2. I've seen them play Woking, 
I've seen them play a Forest Green 11. And then I was very lucky recently to go over to Cyprus and watch them go on tour there. They came up against Paphos FC, where former Saints man Jason Punchin is, is living the good life in, in the sun. Um, they played <laughs> Aris Limassol and Radina Moscow. So they used to go on tour abroad a lot. Obviously, COVID's complicated that. And it's fascinating to see them come up against teams that are established in Europe, senior sides, because of the tournament I watched them, they lost two out of the three games. And when I was speaking to the coach, Neil McFarlane, and the assistant coach, Sam Saunders, they were like, this is an absolutely brilliant experience that they've come over and lost. Because under 23s football is all very cute on the eye, you know, passing it out from the back. I don't want to say easy because I'm not an under 23s player. So clearly I wasn't good enough. But they just say that it's not necessarily reflective of what football is going to be like at the top level. You know, it's all well and good playing nice football in those academies. But in the Premier League, only really the top six, top eight teams are going to be able to do that. What happens if you end up at Burnley and you've never been exposed to that kind of low, bot, low block, backs to the wall kind of defending? And that's kind of the concept of the B team, making sure that those players, you know, experience all of what football has to offer. So I've spoken to Daniel Oyagok a few times. He plays for their B team. He, he, he moved from Arsenal in the summer. First time I watched him was in that South End, end game. And he's 19 years old and the ball kept going in the air, kept going in the air. And he looked like he was struggling to, you know, to deal with the physicality of that, that aerial battle. And the next time I saw him play was against QPR's B team. And he was far better in the air. And I said to him, you know, what's been going on? And he said, that game against Southend was, was an experience. He's like, I've never had to deal with that before. And it was so eye-opening. <laughs> so Brentford's B team is about taking almost advantage of kind of the academy system because there's such a stockpile of players so that when some of them leave that system they can kind of offer them another opportunity but it's also about putting those players out of their comfort zone and I think Brentford take real pride in the fact that they've got I think in their first team squad at the moment they've got eight B team graduates um, so that's when a player officially moves from B team to first team sometimes you see B team players make one-off appearances but they don't consider that as being part of the first team just yet um, mm. so they also take pride in those players who have dropped out from an academy and maybe they've helped them to get a career in a League Two club or a League One club or a National League club. From their perspective, as long as they're helping those players have a career in the game, then that's a good thing for them. And I think that's a really wholesome idea. You obviously mentioned about Brentford not competing in a league as such and arranging their own fixtures. Saints, even though we, you know, I, I guess it's kind of the maybe... Hassan Hutu inspired the the model of it's kind of a European thing, right? Of having that that B team structure, and I know you'll know more about that than I do. But since Ralph's been at the club, we've still competed. We got relegated last season from um, PL one to PL two in the under twenty three structure. But did Brentford not compete at, at that level as such? So they'll organise games against QPR's B team. Um, I think they might have played Arsenal's under twenty threes. Sometimes it's admittedly it's a little bit harder to get information about when they play under 23s games. Um, yeah. They're, all, they're always behind behind closed doors no, normally. So it's a little bit tricky to get down to them. But obviously one thing that people ask me a lot is, surely the games aren't competitive. They're technically friendlies. And of course you are going to get a little bit of an element of that. If you're in Premier League, if you're in Premier League 2 and, you know, I think Arsenal, I can't remember who they beat, but I think they won on Friday. And they were like 2-0 down going into the final 20 minutes and they came back on 1-3-2. That's a real good example of how competitive that league can be 
given the right circumstances. And that's a criticism that's levelled at Brentford's B team. Oh, it's, you know, they're just friendlies, you know, they, they just rock up and it's pretty easy for them. But if you're South End, for example, you're a non-league side full of 25, 30-year-olds, you do not want to get beaten by a bunch of 18, 19, 20-year-old upstarts. And Southend went 2-0 up that game and lost 3-2, which gives you an indication of they weren't willing to roll over. And I'll tell you, there were some meaty... Cha- I know it's non-league players. There were some meaty challenges in that game. It, it didn't look like a friend, friendly to me. So, yeah, they don't really come up against Premier League teams that often. But when they do, it's, all, it's, it's always quite interesting. Mm. Mm. I mean, how few players... I'm not just talking about Southampton here, but, you know, make the... Um... Or, or graduate from the under 23 setup to first team setup at a Premier League level. I, I feel like innovation in in that area is needed. <laughs> uh, Look, definitely, yeah. definitely. If if I can just in, interject quickly, clubs that have academies, I, I couldn't even guess how many players are in an academy at like Manchester United, for example. It must be hundreds from all age levels, right? Probably 200, 300, 400. I don't. I'm just guessing really you're gambling that one or two of those players are going to become first team players. And I remember reading a book a few years ago called uh, No Hunger in Paradise by Michael Calvin. And it was kind of about the academy system. And it kind of really shocked me just about how, how brutal it is. And like you said, there's nothing wrong with a little bit of innovation. Um, You know, Brentford are offering these players who've kind of dropped out from the system a second chance. And that's not, you shouldn't turn your nose up at that. That's quite a good thing to do. But you said these clubs how many players that are in those Premier League two teams are anywhere close to those first teams? How many of them are end up going to have, well, dropping out of the game because they don't get enough action and they hit 23, 24, 25 and, you know, they've never been exposed to the lower leagues of football and they're not good enough for the top tiers of football. There's so many, when you look into academy football more, there's a lot of moral conundrums because like I said, it's essentially, if we've got one Mason Greenwood for 99 players that don't make a single first team appearance for, for Manchester United is that a gamble worth making mm-hmm. so, you know <laughs> exactly I don't know, exactly, Jay. And, I don't know, you know to, to, to ra- yeah to, to wrap on this part the the Pinnock story that you you kind of outlined earlier players develop at, at different ages and you know it, it's not all about physicality it's also about their mental you know d- development and their ability to handle situations and I think I love that about Pinnock and I think he's been a bit of a sort of cult hero outside of, of Brentford this season just for I think he's spoken quite openly about his journey in the game that sort of thing it's been great to see him yeah doing what he's done this season. If I could um, quickly jump in at this point as well. Of course, another Jay. In, another in- Jay, just for what it's worth, jump in whenever the listeners <laughs> yeah, want to hear you more than <laughs> Sam. So yeah, please interject. Uh, yeah, <laughs> obviously Pinnock is a really interesting one and it speaks volumes of, of the hard work that players have to do. Um, obviously, Charlie Good is another one. Um, he was at Northampton 18 months ago, got promoted, got, got them promoted to, to League One. Um I think he made eight appearances for Brentford in the Championship last year. Now he's a Premier League player, you know, coming up against Tottenham, coming up against Watford. So again, it shows if you give players an opportunity and if you spot them, they can make that jump up. But just on the mental side of things, because obviously I've touched on sleep coaches and mindset performance coaches and things like that. Players are human beings. It's so easy for us to forget that. I think what some people um, will say is that Ivan Tony's 
form took on another level uh, when his son was born. And I think his son is two years old. So I think it kind of coincided when he's no longer at Newcastle. He's not going on loan to a different club every six months. He's at Peterborough. He's now become a family man. And his focus was just streamlined, I guess. It was so solely targeted on this one ambition of, of becoming the best player possible. I think that's really interesting as well. Certainly is, Jay. Certainly is. Well, to kind of yeah segue into Saints, Nathan Redmond, another Saints podcast, Total Saints podcast, was talking about uh, Nathan Redmond's just had the birth of his first child. And we genuinely have seen a huge uptick in his performances. So who knows? Maybe there'll be a study into players yeah, having kids and then becoming a lot better. But yeah, it's, a, it's very, very interesting, that side of the game. And I don't think it gets the, the attention it deserves at, at times. Yeah, obviously, Brentford 16 games to their first Premier League season on 20 points. And does that... Would you say that it sort of exceeds expectations for what they what they were looking at at this point? Or I mean, obviously, the club's so ambitious. Were they were they not just thinking, oh, seventeenth? Were they thinking, let's let's push on, let's let's knock up to league to mid table? Yeah, definitely. I think obviously the main aim is to avoid relegation. There's no doubt about that. But I definitely think internally they were confident that if they performed well enough, they could probably finish anywhere between twelfth to seventeenth, maybe. Um, normally only a couple of points separate those teams at the end of the season. So I think there's hope they can finish kind of like in mid-table. In terms of having 20 points after 16 games, it's been amazing. But I think what's kind of struck me the most is the fact that they probably could have more. You know, I think everybody knows that Chelsea, you know, Chilwell himself described it as hand on earth. You know, Edward Mendy really saved them that day. So imagine if, you know, they get a point or, or, or three points out of that game that could be even higher up. I think what's impressed me the most is that they generally pretty much have always been really consistent with their performances. Uh, I'm going to touch my, my wooden desk in front of me because I'm probably about to absolutely jinx them. But they've not been turned over by a team yet. They've not had an absolute hammering. You know, Norwich have. Um, I think what I'm sure Watford did against Liverpool, didn't they? And now clearly it's going to happen to Brentford any day now. So, um, But, you know, the worst performance they put in was, was the 3-1 defeat to Burnley. And they were absolutely dreadful in that first half. But they got, got a goal back in the second half and, and got some credit for themselves. So they just always seem to perform at, at a consistent level. And I think consistency is key when you're in this division. And I just think you, they have an exciting team. You know, they've got a lot of young players. For so many of them, this is their first time in the Premier League. And it's quite interesting to compare it to kind of Watford and Norwich because they're kind of yo-yo clubs or have been for the last couple of years. And sometimes that can almost develop a little bit of a fatigue within the dressing room and in the stands because they're used to this experience. They've been to Anfield before. They've been to Old Trafford before. Whereas these Brentford players, some of them never thought they'd probably get to this level. And now they're here and they just want to make the absolute most of it and capitalise upon it. So I think that's another kind of like, obviously it's not a big factor, but I think that's played a small part in why they've done so well as well. They're just so eager to make the most of it. Yeah, and also looking ahead to Saturday's game, I mean, who are the players? I know obviously we spoke about Ivan Tony, and then he, he's the player that everyone will look at in terms of this game that will think, oh, he's the danger man. Maybe maybe some of the lesser known names, less like inverted commas, sex, sexier names that we don't really hear about. Obviously, you mentioned Yano earlier. Yeah. Who, who, who should we be looking out for on Saturday? Well, I obviously talk about Mbumo because of the Saints link. And um, I actually think 
he'd pretty much agreed a deal to go to Southampton two years ago and you pulled out last minute. I can't remember why exactly. So it wasn't interest. It was, it was further along the line than that. And, um, and Bumo, I just think has a really, really high ceiling. He's got a lot of headlines for hitting the woodwork more than any other player in the top five European leagues this season. And obviously an element of that is misfortune. Maybe an element of that is better finishing, but I've, I've described him to other people in the same way. I'm, this is not my Saints agenda coming into view here. But basically, I think you could maybe compare him to Sadio Mane when he first joined Southampton, a player that's potentially going to get around eight to 10 Premier League goals, needs to just work on his finishing in front of goal, needs to, I don't know if erratic is the right word. Right, definitely. <laughs> but to just make better decisions in front of goal to understand when to try and take a player on and to understand when to kind of release the ball and bring others into play. But I do think that, I think Mbumo's 22 years old. Um, I do think he's only going to get better and better and better. And I do think that in a year, two years time, he's going to be a player who's considered to be, you know, one of the best wingers outside the top six, top seven, top eight, and other teams will kind of be pushing at him. Um, another player who I, ha- I have to give kudos to is Christian Norgard in midfield. He's started every game for the team this year. I think he leads the Premier League in tackles, 53 tackles. Just one of those players who I'd say is a real fan's favourite in the sense that a classic, he's not really going to get on highlights reels on Match of the Day or Sky Sports or wherever. But when you watch him, just you've always got a, a strong appreciation for players that just do the bread and butter things right. They're in the right places at the right time. They make the interception, they make the tackle. They don't try and play an overly fancy ball or something like that. Just real consistency. And he's considered one of the leaders in that dressing room as well. So I'm always impressed with him. Pontus Janssen's always an interesting one because it seems like a lot of people have an opinion on him. Um, he obviously his, actually, his, interviews are, his interviews are very interesting. Anyway. Normally he's chucked a swear word in somewhere. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, and his goal against Watford was actually his first goal for Brentford. So that, that was a really interesting moment that the fans have been waiting two and a half years for that. So I think Pontus Janssen's really good. Obviously, I don't think Pinnock will be available, which is a shame. Um, but otherwise, Johan Viss has been pretty decent, but he's just working his way up to full fitness after an ankle injury. We're not really too sure how much to expect from him at the moment because even when he was scoring against Liverpool and West Ham a little earlier in the season, he was coming off the bench and Thomas Frank was very um, very clear about the fact that Viss is very good on the ball in terms of going forward, but we know how relentless Brentford are in terms of their pressure when they're not in possession. I think he needs to get a little bit better at that before we see his full potential. Um, He didn't have the greatest game on Friday night, but I do think it's only a matter of time until he kind of gets that full fitness and gets the ball rolling. So maybe that will be at St. Mary's on Saturday. Who knows? Yeah, I mean, it wouldn't surprise me. Also recently, had the serious injury to David Ray, who's obviously been so consistent for Brentford over the last couple of years since he moved from Blackburn. I mean, we're a club who's had our goalkeeping issues even before, <laughs> even before the injuries recently. How big a miss has he been since since he, since he was ruled out? Yeah, he has been a big miss. Um, I think what I've noticed more than anything is his distribution. Um, obviously, it's something that Jurgen Klopp spoke about after that free or draw, just, you know, called rare and number 10, which what a compliment. But just in terms of how how much of a brilliant understanding he had with Ivan Tony and Brian and Bumo compared to Alvaro Fernandez. And obviously, Ray has been playing with Bumo and Tony for, many, for a year, 18 months, two years. 
So I understand that, whereas Fernandez is still kind of developing that relationship. But often, let's say an opposition team have a corner, Raya catches the ball, you'll instantly instantly see Mbumo kind of dart, dart off to the right wing. And there were so many times where Raya would just ping that ball straight away, wouldn't even look. It's like, it's just like clockwork. I think Fernandez is a little more passive in terms of his distribution. He's definitely a little bit more uncertain and hesitant about when to gamble. Whereas I think Raya was almost, I don't know if overconfident is the word. No, it's not, overconfident is not the right word. He was just confident in his own ability. And any goalkeeper and any team that play out from the back need to understand there are going to be risks. I mean, the best example is, um, you know, Arsenal-Southampton from the other day. In commentary, when Arsenal are playing it out from the back ahead of that first goal, I can't remember who's commentating, but they're like wincing, like, oh, Arsenal shouldn't be playing out from the back. They go up the other end and score. Um, but also I think, David is, you know, he's been playing in, in English football for many years now and he's used to the physicality of it. I think he was really good at claiming crosses. He was really good at coming off his line. And there are elements of his game that Fernandez is still developing. You know, his debut against Burnley, you're almost thinking ahead of that game, is this going to be a cliche? Burnley are just going to lump the ball into the box. He's going to struggle with it and he's not going to know what to do. And that kind of happened. Um, but he's got better and better with every game. He made a really good save from, from Josh King. He made a good save in the Tottenham game as well. So I think he's he's slowly improving. But um, I think he's still got a way to go until, until he gets to Raya's level. But certainly when the club signed him in the summer, they signed him in the knowledge that he had very similar um, abilities and kind of a skill set to, to David Raya. So it's not like they've completely lost the ability to play out from the back. It's just not quite on Raya's level. Yeah. I've been really impressed with Raya so far. There was a save in the Liverpool game, I think he made from Jota, where it yeah. just looks like it was an absolute given that Jota was going to bag. And yeah, I, I've sort of noticed, I think, watching games that, yeah, maybe just playing out from the back don't seem as confident. I did want to ask a question on kind of more broadly Thomas Frank's tactics and what Saints fans can expect on Saturday. Obviously, it's the first time we're, we're facing you this season. I think we did play... Um, start of last season in the League Cup, me and Sam were, were chatting about it pre-pod. Um, obviously, the three-five-two system, and I was thinking about players that um, have caught the eye probably just for the fact that he's put the ball in the net a couple of times and Rico Henry scored, um, yeah, I think, in consecutive games or, or something similar to that recently. Three-five-two with those wing-backs pushing on, on high. Um, the Chelsea game, which you've mentioned a couple of times throughout the pod, probably one of the, my favourite Premier League games of the season so far in terms of that second half was just mental. And uh, a few people who know Brentford better than I do say, actually, that's a hallmark of Frank's system where actually you, when behind, you're just looking to pen the opposition back and keep the ball in that, you know, in that final third for as long as possible. And I think there were, there were elements of that against Watford on, on Friday night. But yeah, kind of, I'd be interested to hear your take on what, the hallmarks of a of Frank system look like, or you know what you've noticed, I guess, being closer to the club in terms of tactical quirks or, or things he tries to do. So obviously, before, so I think they switched from a four-three-three to a three-five-two towards the back end of last season, and obviously four-four-three gave them fluidity, especially when they had Ben Rama, Watkins, and Mbuma up front, and they were kind of able to switch switch those three around. That was interesting. But they switched to a 3-5-2 because Thomas Frank was basically resolute on the fact that if they wanted to get promoted and then when, and then heading in, and then if they got there, heading into the Premier League, um, having a really strong defence was going to be critical. More than having a better, more than having a better striking force, they basically said that, you know, no team stays up 
in the Premier League, if they've got a dreadful defence, it's going to be your undoing. So that was kind of the, the fulcrum of why he, he switched to a 3-5-2. And Brentford's, or rather Thomas Frank's kind of philosophy is for the team to keep a really, really high line and basically just continually press and try to get overloads really high up the pitch. So I remember before that Arsenal game telling people, Arsenal will lose this game. And obviously people were calling me a madman. You know, Brentford, never going to happen. But if I can encourage, you know, listeners, if go back and watch that game or go back and watch highlights from that game, because Xhaka obviously really wanted to get on the ball just outside Arsenal's penalty box and kind of progress the ball up the pitch. And that was never, ever, ever going to happen with a Thomas Frank Brentford team or any Thomas Frank team because the midfield just pushed so high up. They're absolutely relentless at it. You see it so often where they win the ball from high turnovers. In fact, Sergi Canos's goal comes from an Arsenal player kicking it out and Pinnock is like midway in Arsenal's half. It's, you know, some fans are thinking, what on earth is he doing? But it's paid off in a goal. I think when you asked about uh, the less sexy names and I forgot to say Rico Henry, I was like, oh, I should have said Rico Henry. But Rico Henry is almost so consistent, so good. You, not that you forget him, but he's just such an ever-present. It's easy to kind of look at other people. But they go for the 3-5-2 the with, with Henry and Canos on the wings just to kind of provide something a little bit different. And the idea is that Rico Henry is a little more reserved than Sergi Canos. And Canos is more likely to, to push really high to get balls into the box and things like that. And it's just about dominating teams, really. Like I said, creating those overloads, winning the ball high up the pitch and just, you know, trying to impact teams as far away from their own goal as possible. But that's where injuries have had an impact because Ray is really good at coming off his line and he helps them defend so high up the pitch. And Chris Iyer has been out since, I think he's been out since mid-October now for the hamstring injury. And I is the quickest centre-back, com comfortably that quickest centre-back. And when you lose that recovery speed, when you're playing such a high line and you're playing on the halfway line, then you are in a little bit of danger. And that's exactly what happened when um, they conceded against Tottenham with Hyungmin Son's goal. Caught way too high up the pitch. Reguilón gets inside. They, they concede. So I'm not too obviously sure of what your lineup's going to be on Saturday, but I wouldn't be surprised. No, no if... away, no away. <laughs> <laughs> I wouldn't be surprised if Hassan Hoot was thinking, you know, full respect to Charlie Good, but he's not that quick. I wouldn't be surprised if Hassan Hoot was thinking, right, Sergi Canos is not the most defensive-minded right-wing back. Good's not that experienced at this level. Here's a little kind of area here of the pitch we could target. But it'll be interesting to see for sure. In terms of what have you made of Saints this season, obviously, I mean, you've probably seen him see him a limited amount of time since you've been, quite, been busy seeing been watching Brentford, but just seeing what you made of us this season. Obviously, we brought in, it's been a bit of a change this season for us in terms of a lot of, I mean, a lot of senior players have left in terms of Danny Ings, Ryan Bertrand, Yannick Vestiglard. We've sort of replaced them with either younger players like Tino Livramento, Romano Brogius, who's on loan, or um, in terms of unproven players of the Championship, like Adam Armstrong, just seeing what you've made of us so far this season. Yeah, like you said, full disclosure, I've not had the chance to kind of look that much. I think... You know, the player that kind of jumps out from a mile is Tino Livramento because he's 19 years old, isn't he? Mm -hmm. And um, I, I, to be honest, I'm asking you guys this because I don't really know. Is he the kind of player where undoubtedly he's talented, but at the moment, if you're not a Saints fan, all you're seeing of him is him ripping it up in the final third and perhaps he's a little more suspect defensively. 
I don't know. But he certainly really caught the eye. But I don't want to come on here and say, oh, Livermento is amazing. And new boys are like, well, yeah, he gets a couple of assists, but he, he's getting beaten by his man at the back post all the time as well. <laughs> and then obviously Armstrong's an interesting one. And um, I think if I'm correct, Armstrong and Ivan Tony were actually at Newcastle at a similar time together. Mm. So it's really interesting to see the kind of journeys they've made. And obviously, you know, Armstrong was was behind Tony in terms of, you know, the championship goal scoring charts last season, but still did very well. But Ivan's obviously done a little bit better this season. I think I don't really know that much about Armstrong's game. I don't I'm sure you would say that he probably sh- should have scored a few more. Um, yeah, sorry, Jack. So I've not, 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 no, seen I think in either. actually, Jay, and in the Ivan Tony Armstrong comparison, because me and Sam spoke about it pre season, in that I think if you look at the underlying numbers, they're relatively similar going into yeah. this Premier League season, in that um, Armstrong just didn't score as many pens as Tony. So we were thinking, well, actually, have we got like a better striker than Tony? Uh... But to, to, uh, to talk about like Tony versus Armstrong, Tony's all round game like his link-up play, yeah. I've been blown away. Like I think he's created so many openings for Mbumo when they've played up top together. Um, whereas Armstrong doesn't really seem to have that to his game, Sam. And I, I guess we probably see that similarly. And also on Livramento, I mean, I think me and Sam have called a little bit on the hype around it, <laughs> probably exactly as you were alluding to as well, just because he looks knackered, like he's playing men's football, like you know, yeah. proper football for the first time in ages. And he is getting done quite a lot. There's a goal against Leicester where Madison turned him inside out and stuff. But... Yeah, I don't know, Sam, anything to add on, on our fortunes right now? No, in terms of the romance, I mean, I think in terms of, you look at the numbers, he has been, he's, not, he's done very well in, in interceptions-wise this season, in terms of when you look at him defensively. But yeah, the last, it's been quite sad in the last probably three or four weeks, that maybe the fact that, I mean, he, I mean he's played on what, 15, 16 senior games his whole career. You think maybe... This over the next couple of weeks, he may get a rest. I mean, you've got Carl Walker Peters who can come in and go play to right back. I mean, I've not been a fan of him being a left back the last few weeks anyway. I just don't like square pegs and round holes. He's done fine, but you just need you just lose so much not having a left footed player at left back. Yeah, he's he's been, I mean, some of his performances seem just sort of just sort of gone wow. I mean, games against like Man United. I remember a time in the game where he tried to run down the wing and and Fred was trying to keep up with him. He tried to like nudge him off the ball, and Fred just just had on his arse. And <laughs> yeah, he's just <laughs> blown me. It's blown me away at times. But yeah, it's it's always going to catch up with him. I mean, he's just he's he's a very very talented player. But yeah, he's he's he's, he's in his first ever season of senior football. He's not going to be able to be at his um his peak every single every single week. But um, yeah, very very impressive this season. Just be um. Yeah, it's going to be an interesting week in the build-up to the games. Obviously, as you mentioned earlier about the COVID situation, we don't know what's going to happen in terms of Brentford's game tomorrow night. So that Brentford could have a, I mean, a few days more rest than Saints. Obviously, I know Saints don't play to Wednesday anyway. Yeah, it's going to be an interesting one. But really well, is. I, I mean, both sides will look at it. Saints will look at it and think, we're at home to a newly promoted side. As well as they've done this season, it's a game that we look, should be looking at to win. Whereas Brentford look at it, it's a, got, it's a team that's been struggling all season. We should be, and we can go down to St Mary's and get three points. Yeah, and think I've just realised, you know, on Tony and Armstrong, probably the biggest difference between them is that Tony has been in that environment for a year already. Whereas you're asking Armstrong to replicate his performances in a in a better league, and with teammates that don't know his movement off the ball and stuff like that. Yeah, mm. and like you said, 
Ivan's link-up play means that, you know, against Arsenal, he had two touches in the box and everybody after the game was talking about how, you know, impressive he'd been against Ben White, Pablo Mari, um, just kind of dominated them in the air. Against Everton, his only touch in the box that game was the penalty. He doesn't necessarily need to be... I'd like to see him get a few more touches in the box, to be honest, but he doesn't necessarily need to be in there to have an impact on the game. Whereas maybe a player like Armstrong, if he's not on the ball, struggles a little bit more. And and going on to COVID, you know, COVID, COVID, COVID. Um, who knows what's going to happen? I think it's obviously a developing situation in the Premier League. I think it's a developing situation in the country. It's changed dramatically in two, three weeks' time. So... All we can kind of hope is that the game game on Saturday goes ahead. It seems like tomorrow night's game is in... There are question marks over it, but that seems to be coming from a Man United side as opposed to a Brentford side. So Brentford, you know, might be able to, to not play their game tomorrow evening and, and we're fine for Saturday. We'll have to wait and see. As always these with these things, it's sensitive information. Sometimes we don't find out until the last minute, um, but who knows what's going to happen. Fingers crossed it goes ahead. Yeah, I know Ralph said well, today then. that Saints have had no no positive test there end. So hopefully, we can get the same sort of news from Brentford. I know Penix has also in mind, but hopefully, no more players can. Yeah, can test he also said Sam that the majority of the squad have been double vaccinated. I know it's a bit of a contentious thing at the minute across Premier League squads, where who knows how many have been vaccinated or whatnot. But fingers crossed, both teams are in good shape ahead of Saturday. I was going to finish on because I'm conscious. Yeah, this time of year is busy for Premier League footballers, Jay, but it's probably even as busy for uh, yeah football reporters. So I don't want to take up your your whole evening. I want two predictions, actually. I want the first to be where you think Brentford are going to finish this season. And the second one will be for Saturday. So yeah, they're game against Saints. Where do I think Brentford are going to finish this season? Um, this changes all the time because because one one result will make you think so differently. And obviously I know it's, it's a bias in football. Um, before the beginning of the season, I was pretty confident they'd, they'd stay up and I, I still really think that. Um, I wasn't quite buying into the hype after the first five or six games that it was going to be an absolute breeze for them. I really disliked it when people were coming up to me saying, Brentford are clear, you know, you've got no worries because, you know, they then gave Burnley their first Premier League win of the season, Norwich their first Premier League win of the season, so nearly gave Newcastle their first Premier League win of the season. So it shows you how much can change. And as we've kind of discussed at length, they've got quite serious injuries and, you know, if they suffer any more, then that squad will really be depleted. But I do think they could, you know, potentially finish, you know, 13th, 14th. You would kind of assume that clubs that just have a bigger budget that maybe are underperforming at the moment, your Villas, your Evertons, your Crystal Palaces, are probably eventually at some point going to kick into another gear. And then the, the second one was the score, wasn't it? What's the score going to be on Saturday? I think I might be boring and go for a one-all draw. That's exactly, that's exactly what I was straight, thinking. straight, straight. I know Sam's a big fan of cricket, so I'll just say I'll play it straight back, unlike Rory Burns. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> don't, don't, if we if any Saints play like Rory Burns, you're in massive trouble. Jesus. <laughs> <laughs> oh, wonderful stuff, gents. Well, I've loved that, Jay. Thanks so much for coming on. Uh, yeah, I think listeners will have loved you talking about the club, the B team, uh, some parallels with Saints, but just in a footballing sense, it's been a great conversation. Thanks so much for, for yeah, your time and sparing an hour. Listeners, I hope you enjoyed it. We'll be back next week. I know the, the festive schedule is upon us, but we're hopefully back next week with a review of our last three matches. So yeah, stay tuned for that. Um, thanks very much, Jay and Sam. 
great to pod great to chat all things brentford a little bit of saints thanks very much listeners